755 Boylston. Some help up from the medical tent. Get as many people up here as you can from the medical tent. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. To help you get that law enforcement job, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com. That's jobtipsnow.com. The Boston Marathon bombing was a horrific event that targeted the innocent, including families there to watch and cheer on the runners. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement podcast, former Boston Police Chief Daniel Winsky relives that tragic day and the series of events which followed. Well, Dan Linsky, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement podcast. Thanks for having me. So how did you get into law enforcement? Uh, as a young boy, uh, I had a best friend whose dad was a police officer, Jerry Hurley. And um, I admired Jerry and, and saw what he did and wanted to be a cop. So since my earliest memories, you know, I didn't want to be an astronaut, didn't want to be an architect. Uh, all I ever wanted to do was be a Boston cop from a very young age. And did you start off your career with, with Boston? I did. Uh, at the age of 19, I graduated the police academy, and uh, I could seize alcohol as evidence, but I couldn't drink. And that's uh, that started a 28-year career with Boston police. And I presume you, you rose through the ranks. Can you talk about some of the, uh, some of the details that you had as you, as you went through the, uh, the Boston PD? Hey, I was fortunate enough to graduate with the Hogan Award uh, near the top of my class. And uh, as such, I was able to pick the district that I wanted to go to. So I went to the busiest district with the most crime in Boston, which at that time was District 2 in Roxbury. I spent about three years there, and I was selected to go to an undercover assignment in the drug control unit. I did that for about 11 months, went back to district two for a year, and then went back to narcotics where I worked a series of uh, assignments as a patrolman, being promoted later to detective, spent uh, a number of years working undercover doing narcotics investigations, firearms investigations, going and executing search warrants, working with informants, had an amazing squad of officers that were my partners that we I went out and, and did great work for the community every day. Got promoted to sergeant. In between, I had taken an assignment at the academy where I was an academy instructor, uh, PT instructor, and a criminal law instructor, which was a really amazing job to be able to take some of my seven years' experience and put some of that into the recruits that are serving today. Uh, if anyone has the chance to to be engaged in training law enforcement officers and sharing your knowledge and experience, it's, it's a very fulfilling assignment for the PD. Got promoted to sergeant, was assigned uh, at one point prior to that as a dignitary protection team member for the mayor of Boston. Uh, as their made sergeant, went to a district as a patrol supervisor. Got 
sent to District 2, where I had started as the uh, narcotics supervisor, rated sergeant detective, spent a number of years there, six years with the squad that uh, was amazing, detectives and officers who did great work. Got promoted to lieutenant, was in charge of the special police division, then get promoted to deputy superintendent, uh, the chief of staff, the police commissioner, spent a number of years running the commissioner's office and his day-to-day operations for him. Uh, and then promoted to superintendent in charge of all the uniform divisions, including SWAT, HAZMAT, uh, K-9, Harbor, uh, kind of all the toys with all the district officers in uniform before I was promoted to chief in 2009 as the highest one member of the Boston police. And Boston is such a unique city with everything historical, tourism. What do you think are some of the unique challenges for law enforcement in Boston? Uh, So we've got a number of different neighborhoods that have different challenges and concerns. Uh, We've got a couple of neighborhoods with some uh, socioeconomic problems where the opportunities aren't as prevalent in other neighborhoods, and those neighborhoods have gang violence. Uh, There are also neighborhoods that tend to see people who are engaged in narcotics activity. So uh, we do see some violent crimes and some drug activity that impacts the quality of life in those neighborhoods. We have other neighborhoods that have different challenges. And in Boston, there's no cookie-cutter approach to any neighborhood. You have to work with the community, identify what the issues and concerns are for that community, and the best way to police them. So uh, when I first came on, uh, we would respond to uh, communities, especially communities that were troubled by violence, with flooding an area and making arrests. And what we found out is that we didn't police the community, we occupied it. Uh, Later on in my career, we changed that strategy to where we work with the community to make less arrests, but arrest those individuals who are engaged in violence and impact on the quality of life for others. And, and, uh, you know, I'm proud to say I was associated with a team uh, and a department of officers who in the seven years that I was uh, on the command staff, we uh, reduced part one crime by 40 percent and increased the favorability rating of the police to somewhere in the 86 percentile. So. That was done by working with the community, building relationships, building trust, and working together on the challenges we had in the different neighborhoods. And what is the size of the Boston Police Department? About 2,250 sworn police officers and 800 civilians. You know, one of the things that, that Boston obviously is, is famous for is, is the Boston Marathon. Can you kind of talk about the history of that? Yeah, I can. I uh, graduated the Academy April 18th. Uh, 1987. And three days before we actually officially graduated, they put us out on the streets of Boston. My first assignment as a Boston police officer wearing a blue uniform and a silver badge with a Ruger Red Hawk revolver and two speed loaders on my belt was to protect the Boston Marathon. Uh, My first assignment was the corner of Boylston and Hereford Street, uh, making sure that people were safe as the marathon went on, even before I got sworn in officially as a police officer. It was amazing 26 years later to stand on that same intersection and see that same race, that was quite a different uh, experience. Prior to the Boston Marathon that took place in 2013, had there been any major incidences which occurred at the marathon? The biggest challenges we had at the marathon prior to that were medical issues where we had, you know, extreme weather concerns. The year before, I think we had 90 people who were, Uh, impacted by heat exhaustion and heat stroke and had to be treated as such. Other than that, we hadn't had prior large-scale events or issues. Uh, You know, a normal large event, large crowd management issues presents themselves, but nothing 
nothing of uh, significance. During the marathon that took place on that Monday, April 15th, 2013, I believe that was the 117th edition of the marathon. Can you describe the day prior to the start of the marathon? So that was a beautiful, peaceful day in Boston. Um, we had uh, done our morning brief, and, and I'll be honest, I got it wrong. Uh, I briefed the troops on our plan for the day, and I briefed them with the potential for the Boston Marathon finish line being the location of a terrorist attack. We talked about the potential of a, a bombing at the finish line. We talked about an active shooter event, somebody with a knife jumping over, uh, as they had in the Turkey Marathon, uh, trying to attack the lead runner, or somebody who was going to try and interrupt the race for a political cause, occupy Boston, you know, occupy Wall Street, something like that. Uh, I thought that we would be hit if something like that, any of those were to happen when the whole world was watching and the lead runners around the world were coming down Boylston Street to, to win the race. They didn't hit us then. They waited. Uh, we were prepared. We had officers assigned on that route that were there the entire day. We supplemented with probably 200 more officers with uh, our mobile field force of bicycles and motorcycles and special operations teams. We were shoulder to shoulder looking at the crowd, looking for threats, and uh, they didn't come. Uh, we relaxed our posture once the VIPs all started to leave. And then it becomes making sure that the runners who aren't the most elite runners in the world, who might be running this event for the first time for charity, that we're looking at them to make sure they don't have dehydration issues or um, heat exhaustion, anything like that. And we were doing that. We had done a sweep of the first mile out with our EOD teams two times prior to uh, the lead runners coming in. Uh, I, uh, I walked that route personally as EOD does those sweeps for a couple of reasons. One, nobody feared bombs more than I did in, in any circle of law enforcement. Uh, I think I can say that safely because in October 28th, 1991, I responded to an officer down call and uh, it was two of our bomb technicians that were examining a device that exploded. Uh, that device uh, severely injured one of the officers, severely injured second officer who survived the bombing. One of the officers was literally suffering amputations and, and was rushed to the hospital. Uh, after six hours in that hospital, that, that officer died. That officer was Jeremiah J. Hurley, my best friend's dad, and the reason I pinned a badge upon my chest. So I had a fear of bombing and saw what it did to Jerry that day, saw what it did to his family for years to come with all the events and, and family time that he missed. And I was walking that route to make sure EOD did their job. Uh, as they did. And I also walked that route and thanked my officers for what they do for the city of Boston every day. I used to be a real cop and bang doors and arrest bad guys. And, you know, as a leader of the department, I did a lot of meetings and PowerPoints and I like to get out and shake hands with the cops and thank them for the work they do every day, running towards bullets, running into challenges. As we saw in that recent event in New York, a young police officer, five years on the job, running in and stopping that terrorist assault against uh, the people in the bike lane. So, uh, I walked that route, shake everyone's hand, thank them for what they do, and I uh, was doing that that day, um, was shaking hands, thanking people, and, and ran into a young officer who, uh, name I, I couldn't remember because they're getting younger and I was getting older, and uh, as I was walking away after wishing him a happy Patriot's Day, he, he informed me that he just moved into my neighborhood, five houses up on the street that I live on, kind of took me by shock, I Spent a lot of time at the office, hadn't even realized the house was for sale. Uh, spent 20 minutes talking with him uh, about uh, how great my neighborhood is, the people up here, our community, where to get steaks, where to go 
uh, for dinner, uh, where to get your dry cleaning done, and uh, went on and shook the rest of the office's hands. So I came back to the finish line after going a mile out and coming back in. The lead runners came in, finished, all was well with the world. Uh, the governor put the Laura wreath on the head. They, all the VIPs left. And for me now, all we had to deal with was the runners who maybe would have medical issues. But I went out to the Brookline Brighton area where the marathon first comes into Boston, walked that route, shook those off the hands, thanked them for what they do, uh, got in my car, and then uh, drove to about a half mile away. And I had a, a half mile left of officers that I wanted to thank coming from the Brookline line into Boston. And I was shaking those officers' hands when I heard the radio transmission from the officers at the finish line and uh, were screaming for help when we got attacked. And that was about two hours after the first runners crossed the finish line. It was actually it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but it was about four hours, 10 minutes um, for the first bomb. And the second one was 12 minutes later, 12 seconds later, sorry. And where was that first bomb placed? First bomb was placed right by the finish line uh, in front of Marathon Sports. That was placed by Tim on Zanaya. It was ignited and designed to have people flee away from that bomb as they were fleeing up the street, up Boylston Street. And that's where the second bomb was placed. Uh, that's where the young officer, Matt Caliza, was standing, uh, my new neighbor. Uh, he was injured, and in that location... Uh, the little boy, Martin Richards, was uh, murdered by the terrorists along with uh, a beautiful young uh, student who was visiting and studying in Boston, Lindsay Liu. The first bombing site took the life of Christy Campbell. And as you know, uh, both bombs mutilated 254 of our citizens with uh, some grave injuries. How long after the first bomb went off did the second bomb detonate? Twelve seconds. The following is a live recording made during the Boston Marathon. You will hear the first bomb detonating, then, 12 seconds later, you will hear the explosion of the second bomb. And you said that the second bomb was placed to impact people who were fleeing the first explosion? That's what it appeared, that they, you know, blew one device, and as people were fleeing the other one, they blew the second one in their path of flight. Can you describe what the scene was like when you first arrived at the uh, bombing locations? Uh, I ran as fast as I could. I got into a police car. I drove up to the scene, and a sergeant, Dan Keeler, uh, had taken control of that scene and was running it. He had implemented our emergency response plan, had uh, control of the scene, was remaining calm, uh, directing ambulances to come in and out on Ring Road in Huntington and getting resources uh, to the location, and at the same time um, making sure that no one blocked that route, that we were able to get people in and out of there. Danny did an amazing job running that scene and saved a number of lives. The following is police radio traffic shortly after the explosions. Help us from the medical tent. Get as many people up here as you can from the medical tent. Oh, 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 oh. Ambulance at Hereford 
and calm. I have a, I have a victim here with shrapnel in the leg. Need another ambulance, Johnny. You're at 755 Boylston. Charlie 1, uh, I want all the SWAT team to go back to the base right now and get their rifles, get their gear, and make their way back down here. I got into a car in Kenmore Square. I drove up there. I got out of the car, and Danny was there. He informed me that we had been hit twice, showed me uh, where, pointed to the first bomb, showed me the second bombing. And then he stopped talking and looked at me as the boss and the leader to uh, to lead. And uh, I wasn't at my best. The devastation we saw, the, the horrific injuries, uh, I was overwhelmed. Uh, I went back to the murder of Jerry Hurley and the explosion, which took his life. Uh, there were people screaming about secondary devices, and I wanted to get out of there. I was I was frozen and not acting as the, the person in charge of that event. Uh, I was looking as Danny was describing what happened at the, the injuries of the little boy and the young woman, and... Uh, I, uh, I felt a wave of shame and guilt because I had talked to that officer for about 20 minutes, who was my new neighbor, and I felt that I might have missed that back and that uh, those injuries were my responsibility. While dealing with that guilt and shame and the horror of what was around us, uh, I faced back and forth. I saw a woman who was bleeding, and uh, I, I knew how to deal with that. I grabbed a napkin, and I bent down to put pressure on her leg. And I, I didn't need to do that. They were already medics and firefighters who were doing the treating of the patients. But I knew how to do that. I was comfortable doing that. I didn't know how to, to lead us out of this scene. I didn't have a plan. I wasn't prepared to do it. And a Massachusetts state trooper put his hands in the back of my collar and pulled me by my jacket and said, Chief, I need you to get in the middle of the street. And, you know, uh, I'm the chief of the Boston Police Department. A Massachusetts state trooper put his hands on me. So I yelled and screamed, get off of me. And, you know, he, he thought I was upset and mad with him. Uh, he said, I'm just trying to, and I said, Mark, I know exactly what you're just trying to do. And I, I took the deepest, most cleansing breaths I've taken in my entire life, uh, three or four of them. And I got oxygen into my system. I dumped the cortisol. I dumped the adrenaline off my brain. And my file cabinet opened up. My file cabinet of all the crime scenes I've ever worked, of all the leadership examples I saw, of good bosses. And I said, I want to be like that guy of bad bosses. And I said, I'm never going to do that. All of it was in front of me. And uh, I very quickly realized that I wasn't running the scene and I needed to. And I wasn't, I was furious, uh, not at the officer, Mark Horgan, who put his hands on me to remind me to be the boss and not do the tactical. I was furious at myself for having to be reminded. But once I got reminded and got that file cabinet open, we started to put our uh, response pins in place and uh, we got people out of there. And when all was said and done, the victims were off that scene within 22 minutes, either in the triage tent, in an emergency room, or in an operating room. And everyone who left that scene alive is alive today. At what point in time did you come to the determination that this indeed was a terrorist attack? Right away. When we heard about two explosions, it was pretty clear that it was a terrorist attack. When we pulled up on Boylston Street and saw the destruction, it was very clear that terrorists had attacked us. And you took on the role of incident commander. Can you describe what that responsibility included? Well, I was the incident commander that day. I was responsible for overseeing the implementation around plan to make sure the marathon got off, to make sure it was safe, 
any disorder issues, any challenges, my job was to make sure that we dealt with them. And uh, I continued that role after the bombing and took on the role of uh, the incident commander who was in charge in a unified command because it very quickly turned into a scene that was going to require more than the Boston Police Department. And we set up unified command of the Boston Police, Boston Fire, Boston EMS, FBI, and state police at the uh, hotel uh, block away. And we began trying to first secure the scene, lock it down. Uh, we got the injured and, and, and those out of there. We began looking for other bombs and starting our investigation. And the video that makes this case, uh, our detective team probably had that in custody within 30 minutes. It took us a couple of days to interpret the data, but uh, we were able to get that information at least in our custody pretty quickly. And I'll tell you the secret sauce was, let's, let's be clear, the, there's people that were murdered on my street on my watch. Uh, I, I took personal responsibility for that. Um, this is my city. I felt it was my investigation. But at the same time, a terrorist attack is directly under the responsibility of the FBI. That's what the law says. That's clear. When they came in, it wasn't a question of who's in charge. Um, it was relationships. And I go to conferences and do a lot of training, and people talk about exchanging business cards before the bang or the boom or the problem. Well, I don't think that works uh, because I know a number of people who have a desk full of business cards and have no idea who that person was, whose card they took or why they took it. To me, it's about sitting down with the counterparts, the local mutual aid people, that are, the people that are going to be there when there's a problem, before there's a problem. Sitting down, breaking bread, having some buffalo wings, having a beer, uh, talking about what you're dealing with, what your training issues are, what your management issues are, what your leadership issues are, asking them about theirs, getting to know each other, working cases together, working problems, working events together, and building relationships. So that when the head of the JTTF came into the command center, he didn't say, I'm in charge. He said, hey, Danny, what do you got and what do you need? When the lieutenant colonel of the state police came in the command center, he didn't say, state police, we're in charge. He said, hey, Danny, what do you got, what do you need? And we worked those problems together. Every tip, every lead, Every investigative step we took, there was a Boston police officer, an FBI agent, and a state trooper. We started it, and we finished it completely together. And I think that's a unique uh, relationship that were built over years that helped us successfully get through this crisis as effectively as we did. The eight-year-old boy who was murdered, Martin Richard, he died at the scene, and that was a crime scene. How was his body in that situation handled? Our medics made a determination that we could not save Martin and we could not save Lindsay Lou. And as such, they moved on to patients who they thought they could save. In fact, they saved Jeff Bauman, who had two of his legs completely uh, destroyed by the bombs and had a civilian hero, Carlos Arredondo, who held his femoral artery to prevent him from dying. Uh, that was because of their training. They made a determination on who they could save and who they could not save. And everyone they took off that scene is alive today. Once we determined that those individuals were deceased on scene, under Massachusetts law, the only one who can remove that body is the medical examiner. And the only way we could have the medical examiner remove that body is making sure that it was a safe environment for their personnel to go in, which means that we had gone through the tens of thousands of bags and backpacks that were discarded at the scene and made sure that no other bombs. We also would then have to videotape 
and do a forensic assessment of any potential evidence around those bodies? Could there be a piece of evidence with a fingerprint on it that would link the bomb maker to somebody in a foreign country or somebody uh, other than the, the initial people who deployed it? It was crucial that we got every one of those pieces of evidence. But in doing that, in that whole process, it was a lengthy period of time. And I had ordered everyone out of that scene except for our EOD disposal teams. Uh, and we had a perimeter uh, several blocks away from the bodies. I became aware of a call from our congressman later that night after several hours had gone by that the father of Martin had signed himself out against medical advice because he had been advised that his son's body was still on Boylston Street. And rightfully so, he was frustrated. And he had uh, expressed uh, a desire to go recover his son's body. And um, I explained to the congressman what we were doing and why. He completely understood and just was letting me know for informational purposes. In an effort to save the victims, we triaged based on severity of wounds. And unfortunately, that meant separating families. So the Richard family, uh, Mr. Richards was in uh, one hospital. His wife was in a second hospital. His daughter was in a third hospital. You can imagine the the father's worry that he was carrying and, and concern he had for his family members and not even being able to, to be with them. So he was going over to his wife's uh, hospital. She was coming out of anesthesia after her surgery to try and see if they could save her eye when I was informed that afterwards he might be inclined to come to the scene. I reached out to uh, the team that was in charge of security at that scene, and I was informed that they had disobeyed my direct order that they had in fact not left the scene, that they were taking turns. Um, and a couple of them were former Marines and, and had kind of taken the, uh, the, the gauntlet and started this. And then others stood in with them, but two at a time, they took turns standing in an honor guard at attention over the bodies of the young man and the young woman uh, that they had covered with sheets and, and, and appropriately protected from public view. And they, informed me that they were doing that. The captain in charge of the scene informed that they were in the scene, they were going to stay with the victims, and they had no intention of leaving. They were going to escort them home and that they were not going to leave them alone. We were able to get that information up to the hospital, to our chaplain, Father Sean, who is the parish priest of the Richard family. Father Sean was able to tell Mr. Richards what was going on at the scene before he went in to see his wife. And, uh, when Denise Richards woke up, obviously her first concern was for her son. She asked where he was, and Mr. Richards informed her that there were Marines and police officers guarding Martin, and he wasn't alone. And her concern when she left that scene was that she had promised Martin he wouldn't be left alone. So uh, it was an amazing thing my officers did, completely disobeying my order and violating their safety to ensure that integrity and honor was given to those victims and a sense of peace and comfort to the parents uh, in the most tragic times. Uh, and they stayed until about one o'clock in the morning when they were able to remove those bodies and those officers personally escorted them to the morgue before they uh, went home to see their families. Uh, they're amazing men who, uh, make me proud to have ever worn a uniform that they shared with me. Talk about the events as they continued to unfold throughout that day. 
Uh, several remember Blur. Uh, we uh, got investigations going. We started running down leads, a bunch of false information and false starts. We ran those all down to ground. I went home and had the challenges of dealing with my own personal experience with my family. Uh, I had my kids are usually with me in the, uh, well, not with me, but they're usually with my wife in the uh, VIP viewing area. And I had, uh, my wife couldn't go that year. She had to work. She had a new assignment at work and couldn't go. So the plan was that I would take the boys, drop them off down there. She would come out later and cheer for those runners. And uh, we'd go out to dinner after the event. I had changed the plan because my wife had gone out to work around four in the morning. I realized my sons didn't really want to hang out all day in the sun if their mother wasn't there especially on the day off from school. So I made a decision to let them sleep in. And as we were dealing with the crime scene on Boylston Street, I realized that uh, I had forgotten to tell my wife that my boys weren't there and that she was going to hear about the explosion and uh, be concerned for their safety, as she should, and that uh, I was not only dealing with the terrorist attack in my city, but I had a problem back at my uh, home address if I didn't get that information more soon. And my young son, texted me and said, Dad, are you okay? I texted him back. Yes, I'm okay. Please let mom know. And I thought I was all set with that. But I found out when I got home around two in the morning that my text had never gotten through. And my wife for four hours, because our cell phone system crashed, uh, was unaware of what was going on with me or her children while she was in a surgery with a patient and she couldn't leave the patient's side. So, uh, you know, the family dynamics kicked in as well. We did the investigation, started running down leads, very uh, it took a while, but on Wednesday morning, I saw the video and we identified white hat and black hat as the people who had deployed the bombs. We had pictures of them. We just didn't know who they were and we were trying to find them. With the two brothers at large, was Boston pretty much on lockdown? Not at that point. Uh, we were very much up and running as a city. We had cops in every corner. They were in high visibility. They were encouraging people, letting them know we're here. It's safe. Uh, we're not going to let our city shut down. We're going to uh, go about our business, and we will get these guys. Uh, we, The president came to town, which takes a couple of resources for a department that's pretty tired, but we needed the president to come to town. He stood with us and uh, helped us dust ourselves off. We finally made a decision to release the photographs. We waited for the president to get out of town. The photographs went out. Nobody called us and said they knew who they were, even though there were individuals who do know, recognize them from the news and went to – Joe Ka's, uh dorm room, stole his drugs, stole his computer, stole evidence of the crime that he committed, including the bomb-making material, uh, brought it back to their other apartment, and uh, eventually would hide that evidence and lie to us during the course of our investigation. But none of them called and said, we know who those people are who murdered three beautiful individuals, two beautiful young women, and a, a little boy who maimed 254 citizens. They they. Knowing that that's what they did, they went to their dorm rooms and stole their stash of drugs. If they had called us, we might have been able to prevent the murder of Sean Collier, who was the MIT officer on patrol. He was in the area doing his job when they ambushed him and, and, and took his life very violently. When the carjacking occurred and the driver fled, he had the GPS information. Was that a major turning point in the case? Yeah, it was, we were, uh, I was pretty convinced that MIT was part of our marathon bombing case. Uh, we very quickly learned that nearby we had the carjacker, uh, that had a carjacking that occurred. The victim had given out the information. Uh, and, uh, as we started to chase that car, I put out on the radio that 
these were potentially our subjects and that we should prepare for more explosions. Uh, I, I was fully convinced that these were jihadists who would be wearing suicide vests, would have more explosives, and that we were going to be in for the fight of our life. Uh, and as it turned out, I was correct. And what was that run-and-gun battle with Watertown PD? What what transpired? Watertown officers uh, very effectively uh, saw the vehicle, uh, were, were uh, trying to discreetly hang back a little bit so they had some resources to make a stop. They get discovered. The subjects opened fire. Uh, they engaged in a ferocious gun battle with them where they uh, deployed five bombs, three of which exploded. The sergeant, Chef Puglisi, uh, did an amazing job flanking the subjects, uh, shot Zanayev, uh, Tamlin Zanayev, uh, who ran, fled on foot after being shot. He was a professional boxer, a very fit individual. Uh, Puglisi chased him, tackled him to the ground, uh, was in the process of handcuffing him. When the other brother had gotten into the car, and uh, then drove at Officer, uh, Sergeant Puglisi and uh, Tamlin Zanayev, Sergeant Puglisi was able to get out of the way. As he pulled Tamlin to try and get him out of the way, he didn't get all the way out, and the brother ran over his brother, dragged him about 15 feet down the street. He, um, he still was fighting, even though he'd been run over and he'd been shot. He still was resisting being arrested and handcuffed. Uh, in the gun battle, we had uh, a police officer that had sustained a gunshot, later determined to be from uh, law enforcement gunfire from Crossfire. He was in critical condition. When I got was running down the scene and saw our officers treating him, I realized there was no need for me to put resources there. or Everything that could be done was being done for, for Officer Dick Donahue. I saw our, one of my gang officers with uh, Sergeant Puglisi struggling with an IF. I was fully prepared that he had a suicide vest on, and I was uh, convinced that we were going to probably have to take uh, action. And I ran up with my Glock 40, put it right to his temple, and uh, we searched him, started pulling his clothes off to see if we could find any suicide vest, any dead man switch, a key fob, a remote control, anything that could have activated the two unexploded bombs that were next to the officers on the street. And um, they weren't there. So the officers were able to get him in handcuffs. I took my gun, put it in my holster, and we uh, grabbed a radio and we called for an ambulance to get medical care for the terrorists who had murdered those three beautiful people, maimed 254 of our citizens, and just tried to kill us. Uh, we gave him first aid because that's what we do. We have a system that requires that. We're better than the terrorists. I did lean in and tell him uh, that he was going to burn in hell for what he did to that little boy. I believe I'm the last law enforcement officer to speak with him before he got in the ambulance alive. And uh, I'm pretty confident uh, that my prediction is coming true as we speak. The manhunt for the 19-year-old brother, what was the turning point? It was an intense day. Uh, we locked down 22 blocks. We eventually locked down the whole city of Boston. There was uh, a lot of moving parts, a lot of cops out there putting themselves in harm's way, uh, a bunch of bad intel and information that we had to run down, uh, a lot of uh, exhaustion. We've been going for a week. I personally hadn't slept since, uh, I think I had 29 minutes of sleep prior since uh, Monday. Uh, we were running on empty. We developed intel that he might have got out of our perimeter out of Watertown, might be in New Bedford. Uh, we landed helicopters, put our SWAT teams on those birds. They met HRT down in New Bedford. 
we identified three subjects in a residence in New Bedford. We were hoping it was him. It turned out to be the three roommates who had uh, identified him as the man who murdered the little boy and the two beautiful women and uh, stole his drugs, stole his computer, and uh, hid evidence of his crime. They lied to us, and as such, we charged them with accessory after the fact. They're currently serving sentences for just that. Um, and it was devastating that, again, it seemed like he'd gotten loose. And then we got a break. Dave Hennebury, God rest his soul, he just passed away last month, came out of his house, saw some disruption in his boat, looked inside, saw somebody bleeding uh, and, and lying on the floor of his boat, came back, contacted authorities. This is the actual 911 call from the homeowner reporting that somebody is in their boat. I have a, a boat in my yard. There's blood all over the inside. There's a person in the boat. Are you sure? I just looked in the boat. Can you look at the bird without making yourself nervous about I can look at it right now. Okay, I, I, just let me know if anything moves or anything like that, okay? Our uh, team was able to get there and, and assess it and see somebody in the boat as well. Um, there was a couple of tactical errors there. We called for a tactical team and asked everyone else to hold their positions, but we had police officers who've been chasing terrorists for an entire week, who had been putting their lives on the line, who've literally uh, had their families' lives on the line in some cases as well. Uh, and uh, they all came. And unfortunately, we deployed. Uh, the the uh, control of the boat wasn't the best. Uh, there was officers who deployed in a circular uh, around the boat, and somebody saw what appeared to be him with a uh, uh, a fishing gaff pushing the pole through the plastic to see, we think, to see now that he was trying to make a hole so he could see what was going on. Obviously, we had information that he had firearms and and bombs. They perceived that as a rifle coming through that plastic. We don't know who that was because that person fired one shot. And because of the tactical deployment we did, which Again, uh, lessons learned definitely was not the way we should have responded. Um, we had a number of officers fire uh, a couple hundred shots. Thankfully, no one else was injured. Um, and uh, he, uh, he may have uh, received additional injuries in that shooting. Uh, he may have already, we know he definitely was injured before he was bleeding prior to that. Uh, we were then able to get HRT up there, HRT. Uh, threw some flashbangs and convinced him to come out of the boat, and he was taken into custody. Um, it was a a long week with a lot of emotion and a lot of uh, a lot of tension, and uh, it was an amazing experience for the officers who were coming out of Watertown to see the entire city's people standing on the sidewalks with American flags, thanking law enforcement for the work they had done in capturing these guys. Uh, it was a great day to be a police officer. For somebody who is going into law enforcement or considering law enforcement as a career, what's the takeaway from an event like this? The takeaway from an event like this is that you can be part of a career, part of a group of people that in the middle of crisis when bombs are going off, they don't run from them as every human instinct tells them they should. They run towards them, and they help people. And the help they give can make a huge difference in people's lives. And the things they do on a daily basis can make a huge difference in people's lives. 
and you do meaningful work that makes your community safer and better. And there's no more honorable profession than to wear a badge and stand up for your citizens against evil. And I encourage everyone who is inclined to think that is something they want to do to engage. We need the next generation of law enforcement. Well, Dan Linsky, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com to help you get that law enforcement job you want and deserve we put together a special guide for you seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast you can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com that's jobtipsnow.com if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review on itunes thanks for listening